it's refreshing something that is potentially already there and making it something slightly new, maybe not completely revolutionary in, in the restaurant space, but something that puts a new twist on maybe an old thing or surprises the customers in a way that they didn't quite foresee. And it gives them that sort of wow factor that keeps them coming back. Welcome to Restaurants Reinvented, the podcast for restaurant executives where we go beyond the four walls of the store and talk about industry, trends, strategies, and challenges that the C-suite tackles every day. Your host is Jen Kern, a career marketer across multiple industries and the CMO of QBion. Now let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Restaurants Reinvented. It's been quite a minute since I recorded a podcast, but I'm really excited about my guest that I have here today. And I met this person at our recent show, trade show, FS Tech. And so with no further ado, I'm going to introduce the very talented and smart Richard Shank. Hi, Richard. Hey, how are you doing? It's I'm nice, great. To, nice to be on the podcast. Yeah, well, thanks so much for agreeing to join. I know that, you know, you work for a large organization. You have a lot of a lot of great juicy data, which you presented at Winsight. Before we get into your report and the, the annual state of food service report that, that you presented there at Winsight or at, at FS Tech, excuse me, I'd like to give the audience a little background about you. So, you know, sure. we know your title is the senior principal and VP of innovation at Technomic. That can mean a lot of things. So why don't you go ahead and and give the audience a little bit of a background? Yeah, certainly. So um, if you're not familiar with Technomic, we are the research and consulting division of Winsight, now Informa, for the food service space. We've been around for 55 years, all wholly dedicated to food service. So I guess a little bit on my titles, if you will. So there, <laughs> I have two roles at Technomic. One of them is in innovation. So I'm, I'm in charge of new data products and uh, new research processes and things of that nature. We have a whole group of people who manage and innovate on our current existing suite of services. But, you know, so I work with our data science team to experiment with new ideas, essentially. And then my day job is, is to support the restaurant operator. So as senior principal, I run our restaurant operator custom practice, which is is essentially an advisory service where we do a ton of custom research for the operator, tends to focus a lot on customer experience, mini innovation, and pricing analytics. There's a few other things we do, but those are our sort of main pillars of business. So excited to be here. Fantastic. And you've been with Winsight Technomic for over 10 years, right? Yeah, about 12 years, a little over 12 years. 12 years. So I'm going to say you're well steeped in the industry. Try to be. That's why That's why we're here, right? <laughs> and do you have a specific focus on any particular segment, like fast casual, QSR, SMB, or do you cover yeah. everything? Well, I tend to focus mostly on commercial restaurants. So that could be more often than not, it's going to be a limited service restaurant, both fast casual and QSR. But we do support on a custom basis our full service partners, and that would include mid-scale and mostly casual and upscale casual dining chain concepts. Mm-hmm. So you have the research and the data side that you work on where you're constantly looking at the industry trends and the data and collecting all. I know you mm-hmm. have your technomic list, which covers like the top 500 restaurants. So I'm sure you and your team are constantly mm-hmm. looking at the trends and the data there. And then you also have, like you said, <laughs> the day and night job. You also 
have this part of your position where you're helping advise restaurant operators and restaurant brands. Yep. Correct. So how do you keep a balance between those two things? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a, sort of a push and pull, right? But mm-hmm. clients are our probably number one priority. So when we have projects that are taking me away from innovation, that's where I spend most of my time. Mm-hmm. And I still spend most of my time there. On the other side of things, when we have a hot lead on a new, you know, potential data partnership or product idea, then we'll ramp that side of it up. And we have a group of data scientists and a, a head of innovation and analytics that actually supports me. And he really focuses on that on a little bit more of a day-to-day basis. Um, they're always tinkering with our existing data and then potential new partnerships. So, and then they'll, they'll, I'll bug them when I want to pretend that I'm um, as smart as they are. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, let's get right into it. I'm going to set the stage for our audience. Okay. So here we are on day, let's see. The, the month is September 2023. We are on like, for me, it was day five at, yeah. the, at the FS Tech Run by Winsight conference. And so by that time, I'm pretty gassed. But my favorite part of the conferences is always when someone from Winsight gets up and talks about the state of fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. And so I made sure on the very last day I got up on Friday morning, I think it was a Friday morning, early to come down and hear you talk about the state of food service tech report. And I was like, oh man, I hope this isn't going to disappoint. And, <laughs> and then, you know, and, and by then the crowd has sort of thinned out a little bit. People are kind of exhausted from all the partying and the late nights. All the, all of us on the tech side are exhausted because we've been planning these conferences for months and especially FS Tech is one of our bigger ones. And so, you know, the room is, you know, a little bit smaller. Yeah. And on the stage comes Richard. And Richard starts starts talking and unveiling, you know, some of the data around the state of food service tech report. And I'll just tell you, this girl was just eating it up. I mean, there were so many interesting things. And the reason it resonated with me so much is because I spent the first five days and when we had some, I'll just call them private meetings with operators. Mm -hmm. And then all the discussions I had with our customers during FS Tech on the show floor, side conversations at night at dinner, these common themes started emerging. And you, actually, your presentation, because you couldn't have known that those were some of the things that were going to emerge. No, I, I didn't show up till Thursday either, so I missed some of those. <laughs> right. So your your presentation actually hit on almost every single hot button that I was starting to to coalesce around. Like, wow, look, this is something that's developing that's interesting. So my first question to you is, out of your report, which we'll dive into in more detail, mm-hmm. What for you, being in the industry as long as you have, looking at this data as long as you have, living through the pre and post pandemic and, and where we are today, what were the, the biggest, I'll just say the biggest two or three ahas that you had from your report? Yeah, I think just to kind of think about the context of where the report was coming from, you know, in the, the 12 or so years I've been with Technomic, you know, we've always had the sense that the restaurant space was 10 or so years behind the rest of the market when it came to technology adoption. And, and so what, what I think has been a market change is mostly driven by COVID because they've had to take 10 or 12 years of technology adoption and cram it into two and a half, three years. And so what we're doing now is learning about how to integrate all those things that we've <laughs> brought to the table and use them in, in practical ways. So we've went through some of the hype cycle of these are the next big things and new things. And now it's how do we get these things to work smartly? Right. Mm-hmm. And. And so what we are 
seeing is sort of is essentially critical and and um, i'm forgetting who said this on the panel in front of me but the idea that the kitchen is the nucleus and all systems need to speak outward from it and back to it is is critical because when we're looking at how consumer behavior has changed over the course of the last three years the idea of synchronization has become increasingly important it's not something consumers are asking for specifically but when they show up to get their takeout order and it's not ready <laughs> or they show up and it's been ready too long and it's you know no longer the right temperature it becomes a, a customer service problem. And so that idea of the kitchen as the nucleus that can synchronize the activities of the kitchen, the front of house, back of house and customer in a way that can create the seamless experiences. Uh, we're at this critical juncture where that's now possible with the right tech stack. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one is the kitchen being the nucleus, which I, which I did hear you talk about. What would be another big takeaway? So, you know, the, I, the, I think the, the second thing has to do with the idea that artificial intelligence is interesting, but maybe a little bit less sexy than it, when it comes to how practical it's going to be for, for restaurants in general, because there's sort of two versions of it. There's the generative stuff that can go into chatbots, and then there's the more predictive stuff that goes into the Internet of Things stuff in the back of the kitchen and in our you know, in our tech, in our MarTech and those sorts of things. And that's really more of a predictive analytics function where mm -hmm. we're trying to make better decisions for demand planning, labor planning, and things of that nature. One of the things I had mentioned on the stage related to that had to do with the importance of what I call decision-making redundancy, which is not a term that we invented. It's sort of a textbook sociological nerd term, right? Mm -hmm. And and the the idea would be in the past, when you had sort of, let's say, a bureaucratic organization, you may not have had, say, you know, a, a, a line level staff member in a position to tell the boss, like, maybe that's not the right call. Um, and in, in an industrial capacity, in many cases, it's very important for that person to be able to say it's time to turn the machine off because there's a screw loose. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so it, in, in this particular instance, it's important for restaurants to consider what is, if you're going to be rolling out a lot of automated tools that are generate, you know, built on either generative AI or predictive modeling versions of AI, mm -hmm. it's important for you to build in a human redundancy factor. So mm -hmm. the, the machine isn't making all the decisions that you have a, a fail safe plan in place so that if the, if the kitchen starts to break down, the cooks can step back in and start flipping burgers, right? Mm -hmm. And if the machine starts to stall, right? And that's something that I think the hype of AI sort of hides that fact. And the reality is when we get into the service model, we need to have that redundancy in place. Otherwise, we're going to set ourselves up to fail. Yeah. And, and I love that because the line, I actually wrote down this line in my notebook. Anything built on probability has the potential to fail. I was like, ooh, snap. Yeah. But you did really talk about that really well. I had I had written down your de decision redundancy term too, and I thought that was a really good phraseology to use to put the context around every all the hype around AI. Yeah. Okay, so number one and two takeaways: we have kitchen as the nucleus of the restaurant, and we've got AI. And I want to give us the third one because the third one I'm going to just throw out there because we hear about this all the time. It's been going round and round and round, merry-go-round. And you talked about loyalty taking on a new form. Yep. 
And I'm just going to throw that one out there. And I, and I want to go back and, and I want to dig into each one of these topics. But I'm going to throw out the loyalty one. And there, there were some other ones that, that really mm-hmm. jumped out at me. Loyalty isn't a surprise, but loyalty is so, I don't want to call it broken, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> loyalty is so broken in our industry. So, so I kind of like to dive into that as, as a yeah. third with you, but, but okay. So let's go back and talk about the kitchen one. Cause this, yeah, to me, and I do um, agree with you, by the way, if yeah. I, I could have picked that instead of any of the other two, to be honest, because it's mm-hmm. it's going to be important to get right. It's a big one. Yeah, it's a big one. And it's not it's not going to be easy, but important. Yes. OK, so kitchen is the nucleus of the restaurant or the kitchen should be the nucleus of the restaurant. Yeah. And you described it in, in your early comments. Just it's pretty simple in the sense of if the order's not ready when the yeah. guest appears, or if the guest is waiting, if the guest is placed, the order ends. Gosh, let's take the really crazy s- suggestion, an example of the guest places the order in store and is standing there. This happens to me all the time at Starbucks, is standing mm-hmm. there watching all the people come in and pick up, including the delivery drivers. I stand yeah. by all the time and watch delivery drivers come in and pick up orders. Who knows when they were placed? But yeah. If the order isn't ready when the guest thinks it should be ready or when the guest has been promised or told or expects it to be ready, there's a problem. Yep. And so there was a lot of talk. I heard this in some of our smaller meetings with operators about the kitchen, about using a blend of some are calling it old fashioned business processes blended yeah. with some of the new yep. integrated technology. So tell me what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think that's in line with that idea of redundancy that I mentioned, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not, you know, these technologies aren't a full, like full replacement for hu- you know, human processes that we have in place. And mm-hmm. and in some cases, they can be very complementary. But it takes a lot of study and careful planning to make sure that you understand which existing processes are relevant to your new technologies as you implement them, right? And it may require some slight modifications and things of that nature, which Mm -hmm. does make sense. But I think to your point about the example of someone who's in the store, right, versus Mm -hmm. someone who's coming in to pick up or a delivery driver to come pick up, some of that has to do with like the ability to satisfy those two things simultaneously in a way that makes sure that your customers are, are happy, right? Mm-hmm. And and so in some cases, it may be nucleus is the wrong metaphor. It could be brain, like left right, left brain, right brain, mm-hmm. you know, sort of thing. And so if you don't have those two things working in parallel in a way that's seamless for the customer's ex- to the customer's expectation, then that's going to be an issue. And the best way to do that is to make sure that each system speaks to that appropriate point in the kitchen. So if you have a make line that's going just to off-premise versus all of your on-premise orders, making sure that, you know, th- those two processes are working in parallel. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. you're you're servicing off-premise at the cost of the folks that are staring in the face, which is your best opportunity to win loyalty <laughs> is right. when you service them with a smile. So Right. And who do you see doing it well right now? Or, you know, if you, if you don't want to mention brand names, like, where is it working well? Well... I I can say, I mean, Chick-fil-A is a place where they have probably the most tested processes that you can imagine, right? Mm-hmm. And you can, I would say it's working well, but it's clearly not perfect because you can see 
they have a lot of, you know, like I was just at a Chick-fil-A this weekend on a road trip and, you know, they had a, a folding table standing outside with some condiments on it. So that, you know, so they're, they're clearly their architecture isn't fully developed to do the process that they want. Right. And mm-hmm. the, and that sort of thing. So there's, there's that sort of, you know, attempt to create a, a clear swim lane for mobile order ahead, which is the biggest change in the market when it comes to the pandemic induced shift in consumer behavior, it's mobile order ahead. And so they're creating a mobile order drive-through lane, which is an attempt to create that sort of parallel path without disrupting the other, you know, two ways of integrating or interacting with them, which is Mm -hmm. traditional drive-through and order in the store. Right. Right. And so I think they do a really good job of all three of those things because they test them in ways that work best for their architecture and things of that nature. And then they're willing to ramp up their staffing if they need to, to make things go faster because they're mm-hmm. really focused on that throughput. Mm-hmm. And I almost want to say like, where did we go wrong? I don't think we w- necessarily went wrong. I think it's more about the evolution of the mm-hmm. systems and, and you use this term better integrated technologies. And, and we've been talking about this a lot. Like it's almost a mandate now that the technologies mm-hmm. need to speak well and integrate easily together. Yep. Yeah. And, and the, and there's, there's a number of reasons for that. For the short term, it has to do with the ability to service orders in a timely manner. Right. Mm -hmm. And which is, I think, obvious. And, you know, it's not the, it's not an easy thing to solve, but it's the most obvious thing to solve. Mm -hmm. But then also making sure that the data that all of this spits out, because every, every bit of this is put it spitting out something that you can learn from Mm -hmm. is, you know, is able to be integrated in a way that you can learn from over the long term and to optimize your processes and things of that nature too. So if you know that kitchen orders are coming in at a certain cadence, how does that relate to your staffing levels and what does that do to your, you know, to your ordering levels and, you know, and all those sorts of things and and you're making sure that, you know, on a day where it's 85 degrees and sunny and there's an event down the street, how much you should expect to sell that day, right? And if you don't have the back of house integrated with the data, being able to speak to each other across systems, you're not in a position to answer that question as well as you could be. Yeah, it gets very complex very quickly, right? (laughs) And one of the things, I don't know if you have any data around order accuracy or fulfillment times or things like that, but one of the stats that a customer of ours, a new customer of ours told us was impetus for them to switch to queue was their guest satisfaction rates for off-prem versus mm-hmm. on-prem was 15 points lower. So yep. anything that was placed via digital channels had a 15 point yep. less favorable guest satisfaction rating. And yep. now that they've switched to queue, because actually one of the things you mentioned the pandemic and you know all the restaurants going out and acquiring all this technology, we actually doubled down and built more. So we built a native KDS mm-hmm. at the very beginning part of the pandemic, which we were starting on. And then we accelerated it to have that data visibility and to mm-hmm. have that flow so that orders can come in from all the channels straight to the KDS, right? So digital and and that enables the whole throttling, which you know di- people describe it differently to how you mm-hmm. define throttling, but it enables that throttling like, oh, I see you know, Uber Eats is performing really strongly right now, mm-hmm. very strongly right now. And we maybe want to throttle down on the, you know, two or three others that aren't like you have yeah. that, you have that ability. But do you have any stats that have shown if you have this sort of 
integrated technology, you can you can see increases in different areas. And I, I'm just curious if you have any. Well, on that. we would have a roundabout way of getting there, but we'd have to go brand by brand to mm -hmm. to figure out who actually has the technology and who doesn't. What we've seen is a very similar dip in customer satisfaction for for off premise orders. Okay, and and so with the exception of well, you don't really order in face to face in the drive through, but Anywhere where you get away from face-to-face -face interactions, we've seen a satisfaction dip over the last year and a half across each restaurant segment. But there are restaurants out there that aren't haven't seen that underwater nature of like we can I can I don't have them on in front of me, but I can pull some and and show and we could probably look and see what they're actually doing to fulfill the off-premise orders in a way that might be unique to the others, but. We have certainly seen it, and, the, and some of the reasons have to do with order accuracy, just that timeliness. But there's also a commodification of the experience when you're ordering through digital channels that's very different than when you're when you're in in the store or even in the drive-through. But I will say that when you order it in the drive-through at the at the not the window but the the order station, mm -hmm. that's actually the lowest level satisfaction <laughs> there is. Really, yeah. at the drive-through. Well, there's a lot of like menu anxiety that happens when we, when we've done consumer research and like qualitative work, people get up to the menu and they kind of freak out and just blurt out an order. And they're not always happy with what they ordered as much as they would have liked. And if you've been sitting in a queue for 15 minutes, that just kind of grates on you. And then yeah. when, when you get up there and there's a big truck behind you, you feel pressure to order as fast as possible. And you know, you just. It's not a, it's not always the best experience. That's part partially why that is. But on the digital ordering side of things, I think it has to do with that accuracy and, and lack of, you know, humanization of the experience, but also, you know, it consumers are really looking at it as uh, they're almost commodifying their own experience where it's, you know, it's an easy thing to trade from one restaurant to another on a digital platform. Right. And, and so it's, you know, it becomes less of a brand love and more about brand habit, right. you know, and so the loyalty becomes behavioral versus more of an emotional connection to a brand. Right. And we've actually seen that in some of our um, consumer segmentation uh, work that we track every every month, really. Since the start of the pandemic, we've seen a group that we call functional eaters balloon, where as more, fewer people commute, there we there, there's fewer what we call busy balancers who love their brands, who ha use restaurants to and used a, were very heavy restaurant users because of you know their lifestyle essentially, and they did a lot of off premise ordering and things of that nature. But they loved the 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 restaurants that they ordered from. Now a lot of those folks have become functional eaters because they have they're less time starved because they're not commuting as much, and if they're if they're still ordering online. And now they're, they've, they've probably expanded the repertoire of restaurants they're ordering from, but they're not thinking too critically about how they're connected to that brand as much. And so that could also be a part of the dip because, you know, instead of saying, I'm super excited about the experience, they'll be like, yeah, that's pretty good. You know, like, when you're doing a survey, essentially. Busy so be balancers and functional eaters. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Are there any yeah. other personas? Yeah, there, we have seven that we track. So the, and we've been doing this for about seven or eight years now. They, of course, you put me on the spot. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember them. 
Um, one of them is, I mean, we'll be obvious. We call them a habitual mature, tend to be older. They just order, you know, from the same repertoire of restaurants yeah. and they're not yeah. necessarily out there looking for excitement. There's the, there's the equivalent of the foodie, you know, and there's the, there's a bargain hunter and a health enthusiast. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. But the functional eater is now the largest group by far. It used to be wow. the busy balancer. Wow. And the functional eater is, has less brand affinity. Might mm -hmm. they might have a couple, maybe they're me. They, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's me. <laughs> like they have a couple brands that they might have some affinity to, but then they're just satisfying their appetite based on a balance of price and convenience. Is that fair? Yeah. They still like good food and it has mm -hmm. to be good enough. And even if they show behavioral loyalty, it's probably because it's just right there and easy, right? So, mm. you know, if they, if, if the, the difference between one, one of those folks who goes to a Starbucks versus a Dunkin' Donuts versus, let's say, uh, an Intelligentsia cafe, you know, a lot of it is probably convenience. Like I just happen to go by the Intelligentsia every day and I, I'm going to pay the extra couple dollars because I don't want to go an extra three blocks, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Right. Or something like that. So that, okay. that they're not putting a ton of critical thinking into their choices in that way. They just know they want coffee and they want it right now. And it needs to be good enough to make them get on with their day. Right. Interesting. Interesting. I'm all about personas. Well, I'm in marketing, so you shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> anyway, okay. So, so interesting. So the kitchen being the nucleus. I love this too, because when we did our, at the end of 2022, we, we do an annual digital state of digital mm -hmm. survey. And one of our findings was unified fulfillment is the future, right? Like that's one of the big trends that we had sort of, got, you know, as we come through yep. all of our data and what respondents had said, they're looking for better unified fulfillment and it gets to, right. you know, the kitchen being the nucleus. So cool. So anything else on that? We can move on to AI. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, to me, that's, that's a, com it's a complex question because, yeah. you know, I think the, one of the lessons coming out of FS tech from the operators that I spoke to was it, the idea was this unification, but they were doing it through simplification, if you will, you know, trying to simplify their tech stack and making sure that they had the correct components to do what they need to do to make it integrated, it, you know, and that sort of thing. So that's, I think that's a journey and that people are really just starting, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm trying not to do a shameless plug, but okay. Yep. Hey, that's fine. <laughs> I, you know, that's why we're here, right? Well, yeah. we talk about the architecture. If you have the foundation, yeah, you can build it, right? Yep. You can integrate it and you can build it. Correct. The, the shaky foundations are where we see the larger brands really struggling, right? Yep. Because they're trying to connect all the things, the kitchen, yep. all the ordering channels, the back of house, the data, the CDPs, the data lakes, and it's a ton of work. Yep. And it's, it's not only not reliable, you lose sight of your business and the customer yep. if it's not built on that foundation anyway. Yeah, Absolutely. It's my vague plug. <laughs> That's a, yeah, but it's right on. So, yeah. you know, it, I mean, and to piggyback on that, if that's what you're, you all are pushing towards, it's hitting yeah. the right spot in the market. So, yeah. So yeah. I think yeah. so. I think so. And, and speaking of the market, AI, AI, hype, 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 hype. And so what we heard at FS Tech 
And I heard the NRN, the, the women that do first bite came out saying this. Mm-hmm. They were shocked. Like, wow, a lot of people are really kind of cranky <laughs> about AI. The term I heard was it, it's more it's more of a buzzword than mm-hmm. anything that actually what is the next step and what restaurant owners and operators ought to have their sight on is more like machine learning. You talked about a lot of different AI stuff that some of it got a little over. Like when you start talking about generative AI, I know McDonald's is doing that, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. To me, it's a little bit out there, like out, out of grasp. Yeah. But other than, you know, there's a lot of hype about it. What, what I heard from some operators was, listen, our CEOs and our board is just asking us to look into this. And so we don't want to miss it. Yeah. We don't want to oh, be yeah. left behind. And it, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, you know, I don't know if I, I didn't want to sound overly skeptical on stage, but the, I think it's very possible that people with the right expectations can do well with it. You know, so I think, and I given the example of White Castle on, on stage, which is, you know, they were celebrating, they were getting 90% of their orders accurate. And I think that's probably roughly equivalent to what you get from a human, if you will. But we, we have expectations of human accuracy when it comes to our employees of, of being higher. But is that, that, is the White Castle example robotics? It's a chat bot and it's essentially at, in the drive through. So it's, it's okay. a generative AI, which is essentially responding to your interactions with it and then helping you navigate through the menu. And, and so, you know, the reason why that 90% number is interesting is because when you have a, a natural language processing model, which is a form of machine learning, which in 20 years ago is just called predictive analytics. So we've got, you know, it's just more jargon uh, is, you know, about 90% accurate I mean, 90 plus or minus the, the margin of errors plus or not minus that, right? 10%. And, and so as it gets more sophisticated, that margin goes down. And when I mentioned early in that speech that, you know, anything that's based on probability is going to have a possible failure in it. And it's because there's always a chance that the, the model underlying the AI gets it wrong. Right. And, you know, in the, the example, um, that I think is interesting from driverless cars is they started to encounter, you know, uh, road cones that they didn't know how to navigate and they would get stuck in cement or, <laughs> or you know, or <laughs> they'd wind up walk, driving right into the, into the, so they had, they, that, that was not in their model, right? They didn't know how to, in, the, the model didn't know how to interpret the road cones configured in that specific way. And then humans, of course, started waving road cones at them and trying to confuse them anyway. You know, so th- that, that sort of thing is, is what I meant. Like in every AI is built on some sort of probability based model, right? Every in pr- machine learning is also built on probability based model. The difference is between the two is that machine learning is someone is there's an analyst back there who's probably doing a lot of the tinkering with the models on their own. An AI driven machine learning model is going to try to teach itself, right? There's in a, a software developer has written some code to where it's like, okay, well, this model is 90% accurate. Let's go look for data that'll make it 95% accurate, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, it, and it, it sort of has the ability to look, teach itself to a limited extent, but it's never going to be 100% accurate because nothing in probability theory can theoretically be 100% accurate. Mm-hmm. You know? 
Did they say so? I'm curious. So they had they said ninety percent. I didn't. I didn't. I missed that. Step. It was in a news article. They had okay. So they've got ninety percent order accuracy. What was it before? And what's the benchmark? They didn't, they didn't. That was not a bench. That was not benchmarked. So I'm not a hundred percent certain. I do know from industry studies we've seen eighty five to ninety percent as being mm-hmm. a number out there in different projects. But uh-huh. for drive through, um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Seem that seems low to me because those are all mystery shop based programs that you know mm-hmm. I that either tells me that 10% of customers are leaving without asking for the order to be corrected mm-hmm. or that maybe that's, maybe it's actually higher, but you know, cause yeah. We, and I, I wonder how that cor- customers are complaining about in order. Right. Right. And I wonder how customers sat, what, what they're seeing, it, it, assuming that that was an increase. So, so they, they've found people to be happy. They've, they've found their staff actually really liked it because it freed them up to do some other stuff. Mm-hmm. So they had said in their, in their, in their words, they, their staff was, please don't ever get rid of this thing. Mm-hmm. Cause what I think it did, it allowed them to do, you know, in restaurants, we've probably all been doing the work of two or three people, you know, mixing job roles and functions because mm-hmm. of staffing levels. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's probably helping their staff focus on the things they were hired to do right Mm -hmm. (laughs) instead Mm -hmm. of you know having to reach across the line and help someone who maybe only has two hands instead of the three that they need to get all the you know the chicken rings and sliders out the door or whatever right right well it's interesting because i've i've heard two different use cases kind of for the drive-through ai i've heard people like it working really well Mm-hmm. And like, this is the White Castle example. It sounds like it's working yeah. well. The staff loves it. And then I've heard people saying it just doesn't work. Like it need, like yeah. I had a couple operators say it's not working well and mm-hmm. we need to keep testing. Like we're going to let the big guys like the White Castles test it all out yeah. for us. And then we'll find, and we're also seeing there's some companies that have been in the news lately, like either getting acquired, going out of business, mm-hmm. looking to be getting acquired in this space. So. I'm curious what where do you think these use cases going to land and what's it going to take for this to get you know let's just use the drive through example for the AI mm-hmm. the drive through to get sorted out I think I think the 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 strategy is exactly right you need to let the the folks with the capital do the do the experimentation because they have the ability to do that and you know whatever they're doing is going to be able to be commercialized at some point and so the 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 more they tinker with it, the smarter it'll become. Yeah. But I also think it helps to come in with it with really realistic expectations about what mm-hmm. can be done in any sort of probabilistic environment. So the knowing that it's going to have to have a fail safe in place is sort of rule number one for me, making sure that you understand that it's never going to be a hundred percent perfect. And what, what is your plan for the 10% where it's not was sort of the, illusion I was making on stage, right? Because it, that's what I think going back to that redundancy question, if you have those human processes in place to pick up where AI leaves off, you'll be better better served that way. Yeah. I mean, I loved when you said that because you also use the example, I know you said just now the self-driving car, but I think, it, I think you use the example also of like, the beepers we have on our cars now and you're driving yeah. down the road and it tells you it beeps if yeah. you're about to turn the left lane and there's a car there. But sometimes you might look 
and there's no car there or there is a car there. Like it doesn't yeah. always work. Like yeah, or and it's, so, two, it's two lanes over instead of one, you know, right. and you know, so that was the, yeah, that that's an example of, of, you know, where technology and humans can interact right. in ways to make better decisions in theory. Right. It's also easy to over rely on technology and get into trouble. You know, that's where, you know, some of these folks who are getting into wrecks with their Teslas are, you know, they, they didn't read the fine print, if you will. And it's, you, you have to be prepared to grab this wheel right. <laughs> essentially is what it says. Right. And that's what we're, that, that was the lesson. Just be prepared to grab the wheel. Right. 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 Um, it's, it's a good watch. It's a good watch word for AI. It's like, Hey, you yeah. have people too. You have humans with brains in your restaurant too. Yeah. And I mean, and, and one of the things that's interesting about AI in general is its inability to empathize and to improvise. Mm. Right. So humans have the ability to do that now. I'm not, not saying, and I know that some of the most futuristic thinkers in that world are like, well, if we can get two, AI, two AIs learning from each other, we can create empathy with machines. And I was, you know, I'm thinking, well, that's, I'll, I'll, I'll wait and see, see what, the, what that means <laughs> yeah. later. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. But the, it, it's, I mean, I guess in theory, they could learn from each other, but humans can process things very quickly. And we, our ability to improvise in a pinch is, is something that I, we don't want to let go of in general because you know mm -hmm. the that's where creativity comes from and right with food being creative is a differentiator so mm -hmm. man if you're if you're telling me the world has gone that way rich i don't know i gotta find a I lot of acreage in montana be, yeah. <laughs> if, if robots are gonna yeah. be feeling and thinking and empathizing and if, well whoever told you that like yeah. I'm out. Well, I'm out. I, that I'm was more of me, me reading, <laughs> reading them, just trying to figure out like, yeah. okay, what's the next thing? And that yeah. is, you're starting to see like Google take two different AI models and have them sort of speak to each other to see if they can learn better together. And which is, you know, I'm not, you know, what sure, I'm not sure where that'll go, but that sounds like two data sets blending to me, like yeah. instead of just. You know, it's yeah. probably not functionally much different than that, yeah. to be honest. Okay, well, another AI area is dynamic pricing. Yeah. Is dynamic pricing going to take off? Is it going to make it? What What's the feeling yeah. about dynamic pricing? Well, I in general, when we've done research on dy dynamic pricing, we have run into this problem of pricing ethics and from a consumer standpoint, right? There are... Right now, if you think about the folks who do dynamic pricing very well, airlines and and lodging, there is an undercurrent of consumer distrust in the pricing models of those those industries. And but they don't really have a choice. Like consumers, if you have to fly somewhere, it's not like you can. You know, we don't have bullet trains or anything like that here that can take us across country in five hours, right? So there's no other alternative. So that people accept it because. It is what it is, right? Lodging is a little different, but it's still like you have to find a place to sleep and you can pull up a third-party vendor website and figure out where what, what fits your budget or whatever. But if you're only looking at, you know, a Bonvoy or a Hilton app or whatever, you know, you're basically just at the mercy of whatever pricing algorithm is, is telling you that day. And if you've seen people that have called up the same search and gotten two different prices, they start to wonder what's going on, you know? And so 
when we take that into the restaurant space, we have, we don't have a captive market. And so that sense of price fairness puts, I think, some folks at risk for being overly, I think, reactive to demand, if you will, because that's what demand, you know, demand-based pricing is about. Higher demand, higher prices and all that stuff, right? Surge pricing and Uber, right? And so, and Uber's even giving you the apology now. It's like, hey, if you come back in three minutes, maybe it'll be cheaper. You know? And and so, I'm, I'm, not, I'm skeptical, let's just say, just because we're not a captive market. Consumers in restaurants, brand switching is super prevalent. It, you know, most restaurant chains are sharing a large portion of their core customer base with their direct competitors. And, and so if, if you're, um, if you're going up, why, why won't I go down? Right. If that, if you, you know, if, if you're McDonald's and you're going to go up in price in the afternoon and I pick up on that and I'm Burger King, why wouldn't I just go down? You know, like why, why don't I start running two for ones against your five ninety nine or whatever? And, and so I think there's too much competitive density and in, in brand switching in our market to make it widely prevalent. I think there's probably context where it makes sense for sure. And I, I know there's one bar in particular and spacing the name of it that was gamifying um, demand-based pricing and turning it into a stock market. You had to bid for the right to get your beer and, and it became kind of a fun little game, but that's a high-end, you know, that's a high-end product there. It's not going to work in the, uh, the old taverns around Chicago here, if you will, right. where everyone's used to their $3 old styles. Right. Right. It's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about a lot of things as you're talking. I mean, one is we have a customer in QSR who it's, I mean, they're pretty much open 24 seven and they see mm -hmm. a surge late night Yeah, or they have been in the last year or two. And they're considering that like using it that way. Like, yeah, well that's, that's like day part pricing, right? Or, yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that is a, a light form of dynamic pricing that I mm -hmm. think is, 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 would be understandable to, to customers. But if mm -hmm. you walked in one day and it was $4.99 and the next day it was $7.99 because there happened to be a game next door or something mm -hmm. or a concert, that'll be a, a challenge, I think, yeah. with your core customer. Yeah. And I think we heard that there was some Super Bowl data that came out about, about that with restaurants and pricing and it was not widely accepted by consumers. No, it's and it has the has that sense of fairness. Like when we do price pricing analytics for our customers, there's we usually tell them there's two negative responses to pricing, mm -hmm. and the first one is the obvious one, which is I can't afford this anymore, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. And the second one is you just raise price, and I don't I don't think it's fair, right? And right. and there's only a handful of conditions where consumers think price increases are fair, and mo in inflationary environment, that is the most common condition where people think that's it's fine if they think your costs are going up and they're going up precipitate or in a, you know and you're raising your price to accommodate for that mm -hmm. consumers don't mind that, that type of price increase right. um, i don't think they find it fair just because you got busier today than yesterday right. that you're going to double the price on me for the same product that costs you the same back of house like that's the and in some cases if you're getting volume discounts for how much how many yeah. burger patties you're selling you know and a savvy consumer would think that's even doubly unfair so. right well we've definitely been burdened by more price increases in the last like yeah you know two years with restaurants and i feel like as a consumer 
it, it, it needs to slow down a little bit. Like I'm yeah. very understanding of the inflationary market, the labor, I mean, you know, the labor challenges and all the things I'm in the industry. I get it. But it just like, it seems to just keep creeping up and it's just, and then with the yeah. tips, like now you have tipping at all, you know, places yeah. where sometimes the people aren't even doing anything. Like, well, I don't know what I'm doing there, but you know, you're getting right. a coffee and you're, you know, you turn around and the coffee's right there and they're asking for a tip and you're like, you know? yeah, you're not sure what am I supposed to do this? Are you getting, are you on tip credit? I'm not sure. You yeah. Know? And that they, it kind of creates some uncertainty there. The, yeah. Consumers, we tracked their price, the, well, their sensitivity to inflation over the last year and a half. We do these mm -hmm. studies every quarter. They're called the consumer and operator outlook report that they go into one of our membership programs but the what we found in those studies was they tended to, when they when they were describing what a fair price increase would be it tended to follow the headline inflation number mm. it, so if they if the news was telling us inflation was six percent mm -hmm. their expectation was well i guess restaurants are going to go up six percent Right. And then, and that now that it's gone down to three, three and a half, or what it's kind of bounced around th yeah. a little bit in the last couple months. Yeah. That those expectations have come down to almost historical norms, which mm. is two and a half, three percent every year. And, and so the restaurants are in a place now where they were already growing price sensitive. You know, they're already, we're running up against increased levels of debt, student loan payments starting this month. And then, you know, like how, how many other pricing actions can they take right now right. is a question, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I love, well, just one more quick little story. I love stories. Y you mentioned Uber and yeah. surge pricing in Uber. And when I was at FS Tech, I mean, my default is to use Ubers when I travel as the tech for, for cabs. Yeah. And I used the Uber like two or three times. And then I was like, this is crazy expensive. Yeah. And I went on Lyft, which I have the app, but I haven't used it in literally like two years. Mm -hmm. I went on Lyft and it was almost half the price. Yeah. Better service. <laughs> Came fast. So the first two days I used Ubers and the last three days I was at the show, I used nothing but Lyfts. And it was yeah. so, I mean, on average, it was less expensive. I, I, I was shocked. Yeah. But anyway, so that's just an example of like me being like, wait a minute, why am I? Like, yeah, okay. Well, and, that, and that, that, that example, when you apply that to restaurants, when we talked about the functional eaters, yeah, they're making those same decisions on the third-party apps when they're ordering. Like if, right. you know, if the, the delivery fee is X from pizza place Y and yeah. it's Z from the pizza place B, yeah. you're going to go, they're oftentimes going with the lower fee. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and uh, that sort of thing. And it becomes less about the brand love and more about, I just wanted pizza that day and it was good enough and, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. still good, but, you know, whatever. But th that, that that's an example. Yeah. And I, I think you had mentioned st something about loyalty too, right, earlier. Yeah, well, I want to get to loyalty because I feel like that's such a good combination of everything we've yeah. been talking about. It's like right. you use this term like brand switching. Like you said, the, yeah. the phrase brand switching is very prevalent right now. Like mm -hmm. we're all sharing, especially in fast mm -hmm. cash QSR, right, and then what you're calling yeah. the limited service areas. Like. The brand switching is very prevalent. So where's the area for opportunity? Loyalty. Yeah. And it, loyalty uh, is yeah. is stinky right now in restaurants. It stinks. Mm -hmm. It's like yeah. buy 10, get one free. Blah. And it's, I, it's I, when I was mentioning it and saying, so we had put a, a number up on screen 
which was essentially looking at some of these modern loyalty programs, you know, how many of, you know, how many consumers would actually visit a restaurant with this type of more digitally focused program. And the, you know, almost half would say, well, I would definitely visit more often if, if I had something like that. The challenge is getting people to actually activate on that promise. Right. And, and so one of the things we've seen be most effective is the, you know, in order to sign in and use all the bells and whistles of a, of a, a restaurant's first party ordering app, you're pretty much signing up for a loyalty club, whether you know it or not, <laughs> you know? And, and so it, that's where that integration comes in, right? Like in order for you to get the, the tracking, in order for you to save your payment, all the stuff you have to sign up, give us your information opt into certain things. And then, you know, if you want rewards, we're going to start pushing them to you. Right. And, and so the, th that type of integrated loyalty program is, when it comes with the ordering app is um, probably the most powerful tool. The trick is we, it, it fragments the whole market, right? Because there's only so many apps people will put on their phone. We did a off-premise multi-client study, which we sell throughout the year this year. And, you know, and there's limited space. Yeah. Right. There, there's a very limited space on the phone for rest, restaurant direct ordering. So, and that has to do with the fact that, you know, even if you wanted to switch back and forth between six or seven different burger restaurants, it's real hard to do that in six different apps. So eventually you wind up defaulting to the third party ordering applications just because of the fragmentation of the whole ordering system in those first party apps. I think the future is someone who can create a marketplace for those first party ordering apps where that looks like an Uber or a Grubhub, but it only facilitates the loyalty and the programs the way that the restaurants want to run them, you know? And so, because then you can find people searching across brands and, you know, and doing the things that make Uber and Grubhub and DoorDash so powerful, which is to simplify the consumer search function. But once you get people into that, how would that program, work though? I mean, yeah. how would that work? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's why I'm not a tech person. I'm just throwing <laughs> ideas out there. Here's I mean, you're essentially saying it's like, so it would be like the restaurant's website. They would right. go there and they'd fill out like the form, all their information. Well, yeah. And, okay. I was thinking like, I mean, someone's got to have an API program where, yeah. you know, you log into one place and it logs you into all the restaurant apps <laughs> and yeah. you can search for them. And, you know, and you'll, when you pull it up, it'll pull you in their environment and you get, you see their rewards and you, you see their menu and you just, you send your order, you know, that sort of thing. Cause right now. Oh, you're now, saying the consumer would only have to do it one time for all the restaurants. Th that's right. Yeah. Like oh, in order oh. for that place to work, you know, like in order for these first party apps to work in a way that would enhance and build the critical mass of all these loyalty programs, it would need to be less of a fragmented market the way it yeah. is is three yeah. to five apps on your phone is about all you're going to do yeah see i I, ha I have a slightly different take on this yeah and i'm very opinionated about it <laughs> i, I want to hear it because yeah. <laughs> i'm a passionate consumer and yeah. i've tried i think the apps are the problem yeah i have tried to get our customers Every time we get a new customer, I download their app. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go there. I'm going to use the app, mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. And then I get annoyed because then they start yeah. emailing me. And yeah. and next thing, I'm like, oh, I'd love it for like a minute, you know, or a month yeah. or two. 
And then I'm getting too many emails. I'm getting too many pop-ups on my phone. I'm getting just too much stuff. Yeah, that's why. And then, why. by the way, I'm only going there, like you said. I'm going there like once a month. Yeah. And I don't even use the app when I'm there. Yeah, that so does happen. So I, I, think, I think part of the problem is this this big push we had towards apps for the last three, four well, that, years. Yeah, and I think I agree with that, which is why I'm advocating for something a little different. So <laughs> here's know? what we're doing. We're working with loyalty partners that enable you on checkout, on mm-hmm. the customer-facing display, put your phone number in. You don't have to download yep. an app. You don't have to do all that crap. You don't have to stand there and, you know, do fill out forms and whatever. Just put your phone number in and we'll enroll you. Yeah, I I like those because then you, sometimes you get surprised by like, hey, you just got $10 off because you've been here. But I did, you know, the the only thing is, is there was no, no, nothing telling me I was about to earn a reward anywhere, you know, on some of the currently existing ones. So, and I agree, I think it, it has to be simple. Which is why it, if you only had one place to log in and they weren't and the only place they could communicate to you is through the thing rather than all of your emails, <laughs> you know, and you could log in and say, well, I've got $25 of rewards in this one restaurant that I've earned over the last six months. Maybe I can use that today, you know, and then, you know, in these other three restaurants that I I'd normally go to, I can see it all in one place. That's what I think is rather than all these disaggregated apps all over the place, some sort of system that, you know, the way you're, I think we're in Spirit, we're talking about the same thing, which is integration. Like, how do we get all this stuff integrated into one space? Yeah, although I I do like your idea. <laughs> I think about it. Yeah. I do like your idea because, well, what I'm talking about is for a single brand solve, yeah. right? So please, if you're listening and you're a restaurant operator, which hopefully some of you are, Consider just allowing your guests to give a phone number when they when they're in the store. Okay, this but this is the problem. This only solves for in store orders, right? No. So they're in the store. Let them let them enroll with a phone number and then give them a free cookie right there on the spot or free something right no. right there on the spot. And don't blast them, of course, right? Don't blast yeah, email. I mean, you get and so many emails yeah. from retailers and all this stuff. That, you know. So. But what I like about what you're talking about is you're talking about spreading it out to make it like you were saying like more of a marketplace maybe disintermediating some of the delivery stuff but making it more accessible for you across different brand you as the consumer across different brands i don't know i feel like though i don't know if you have stats on this like like i've got my top call it four brands mm-hmm. i go to that are mostly fast casual right top four and then i have the other 10 or 20 yep. Right. And, and that like functional eater thing that you talked about. So, but for the top four, I want them doing a better job of earning my business because they've been increasing their prices. I get very, it's very hard to get loyalty. One of my favorite brands came out with this really shishi loyalty program Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the year and it had all the promise and it's, it's, I'm seeing it start to go, I'm seeing it start to falter, which makes me sad. I don't want them to Mm -hmm. fail because I think they built this themselves. But I eat there a couple times a month. I don't see any gimme. I don't see anything gimme back. And so right. one of the presentations I listened to, it was Incentivia, which is a partner of ours. And I thought it was really interesting because their loyalty funnel, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get all of them right, but it started with strangers. Mm-hmm. And then it went to like maybe known stranger. And then like it didn't actually turn into a loyalty candidate until they were visiting frequent, until their frequency re- reached a certain rate. 
And so thinking about those, all those different categories and what, what are you doing for those people differently? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where I think we have never had the ability to target those different groups individually and even go even further than that and personalize within those groups, you know, which is something that, you know, the now machine learning programs and potentially future AI versions of that can help with, right? Which is a really, a really smart database marketer, right? That can go in and find targeted behavioral segments, right? And you can, which of these do we think would potentially, you know, trade up to something else if we showed it to them, you know, those, those sorts of things is trying to figure that out. Cause it's, you know, how do you drive frequency of these programs and how do you drive incremental purchases while they're there? are the two main goals. And, and so we, we're not necessarily getting it right, but we have the capacity to get it right in ways we never had before. Right. <laughs> which was the, the message I was trying to have on stage there, which is, but you have, you know, have to think back to that idea of integration, make sure that you're making smart information, making smart decisions with your information and those sorts of things. But yeah, the trouble is activation, right? And if you're getting notifications on your phone and you're getting emails and you're getting texts, all those sorts of things, it becomes, you know, it's just a sea of, uh, you know, it's, it, you can't really cut through the clutter again. Right. It's, and so what, it, what those things are powerful for is rewarding those folks who maybe aren't putting a ton of effort into the thinking of their food. So they, they're like, every Monday I go to Starbucks and get my coffee in the morning and it's just sort of a routine thing you can reward those people and make sure that they come on a Tuesday, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and how to do that. I don't think we have per perfected from a marketing angle yet. Cause I think we're just trying to hammer away at every, every different communication channel we can. I don't even think we've begun. I mean, I'll never forget when Jonathan Rocket said, we're in the first, you know, the first inning of digital transformation in restaurants. I mean, and everyone we talk about loyalty, they hold up Starbucks and I'm a Starbucks customer. I use the yeah. loyalty. I go there all the time. I don't think it's any great shakes. Yeah. I mean, they have games come out and they do stuff. Oh, okay. They have challenges. Yeah. Like you said, like come on Tuesday or buy three or whatever. Yeah. I don't think yeah, it's I, I think they've gotten better at it, but it's definitely yeah. not the, you know, we're, we, we definitely have not perfected what's going to be the, you know, I also think we're, it, we now can see visibly how many, like through the old a analog channels that were invisible to us of marketing, mm -hmm. like how many customers do wind up passing our offers by, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah. we, we, have, we can track those now, which I think yeah. also gives the illusion that it does not working as well. Yeah. Sometimes. Well, um, the data is there and the data is coming. And so, uh, so all the smart people listening, here's the opportunity and in innovation and in loyalty, right? Smart strategic innovation and loyalty that, yes, absolutely has to come down to personalization. No small feat, no easy task. We're yeah. working with a lot of newer up and coming loyalty companies who, you know, yeah. I, I think have some promise. So anyway, I know we're bumping up against time here and we could probably talk all day. I know I could talk to you all day and ask you questions all day, but I want to give you a chance. If there's anything we haven't covered, I know there was a lot more in the report. We talked about new store models, changing footprints. We talked about yeah. off-prem, you mentioned off-prem ordering stats, you, you went into the future. Mm -hmm. Can people like get a copy of your, I know it was more of a presentation than a report, or can they reach yeah. out to you? Or I Yeah, they, they can feel free to reach out to me if they, okay. you know, so my, 
I don't know if my contact information will be anywhere. Or should I just say it here? You can say it. Yeah. So, I mean, you can reach me at uh, rshank, S-H-A-N-K, at technomic.com, T-E-C-H-N-O-M-I-C. Mm-hmm. And we'll just blast your email And you do have a right? link, but I think yeah. it's, they do have, they, they were supposedly sending the link out from, to all FS Tech attendees. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, but I can put it in the show notes. Can I put the link in the show notes That's to the totally report? Fine. Okay, cool. Yeah. The report's awesome. So I'll put it in the show notes, go download it. Final closing thoughts, Rich, where is the restaurant industry headed? Oh, well, I think, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's always a good question because yeah. the way I, the, where I think it's headed is sort of a blended model of humans and machines, if you will. We were already sort of there in, in the, in the kitchen anyway, but I do think the future machines might help sort of maintain, even at the lower end of limited service, the ability to do more scratch cooking where you can automate the, you know, fresh prepared burgers and, you know, things of that nature rather than, you know, maybe having things that you're, that are pre-cooked and stuff like that. So there, I think there's going to be some machine development that'll enable a return to some scratch cooking to a certain extent, even if it's machine doing it, it's, you know, we're not preparing as much offsite from that angle. But I also think there's, there is the place for the commissary where people are going to do a lot of shops, shopping and and splicing and dicing and things of that nature to prepare toppings and, 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 and ingredients for different and things maybe offsite. So that's one thing on the kitchen front. I, I also think one thing we didn't talk about is the return of experiential dining this last year. There's some interesting experiments happening with even things like pickleball bars and stuff like that, which I don't know if I want to get into a fight with a drunken pickleballer, but you know, the, they, they wow. got, they, yeah, but they've got rackets and stuff, you know, but yeah, there, yeah. there's a lot of things like that out there. I, I know there's, there's shuffleboard bars and ice curling bars and stuff like that, where, yeah. you know, that's something that I think people are just looking for that next bit of differentiation, both in the limited service space from a food standpoint, and then in the full service space from an experience standpoint. So, yeah. Well, it's funny you say shuffleboard. That's what that was the event that we held at FS Tech. We did a evening shuffleboard event at a bar and it was a huge hit. We had like 80, 90 people come out for that. I, I'm bullish on the, on the pet scenario. Like I, I went to a, it was, it was full service, but it, mm-hmm. it was like essentially a dog restaurant. Yeah. You could sit I, outside I or inside. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. Very popular. I mean, it was packed. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, I would be happy to go there if I can get my dog some exercise while we're eating. So exactly, exactly. And lastly, tell me, what does reinvention mean to you? Reinvention. That's yeah. The podcast is restaurants reinvent. We're, we're big on, I'm big on reinvention. Well, I, you know, I, the, to me, it's sort of refreshing. Like it's refreshing something that is potentially already there and making it something slightly new. Maybe not completely revolutionary in in the restaurant space, but something that puts a new twist on maybe an old thing or surprises the customers in a way that they they didn't quite foresee, and it gives them you know that sort of wow factor that keeps them coming back. Awesome, so. I love that. That's perfect. Okay, great job. Well, thank you so much, Rich, for coming out and sharing okay. sharing your findings with us from this fantastic food service tech report. 
As mentioned, it will be available in the show notes. If you have any questions, reach out to Rich and his awesome team that are restaurant innovators. And we just thank you so much for your service to the restaurant industry over the past 12 years. Fantastic stuff. It's been a lot of fun and I look forward to more. So I appreciate your time here. It's been great. Thank you, Rich. Have a fantastic day. Yeah, you too. Thank you for checking out this episode of Restaurants Reinvented. This show is brought to you by Q, a restaurant tech company paving a brighter future for operators with the industry's first unified commerce platform. If you enjoyed what you learned in this episode, make sure to follow Restaurants Reinvented in your favorite podcast app or visit qbeyond.com, that's Q-U-B-E-Y-O-N-D.com forward slash podcast to find all of your latest episodes. 